stories from your community. This is the 519 Podcast, part of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network. There comes a point every February where we find ourselves asking, how did I not know this before? Especially in southwestern Ontario, where thousands of escaped slaves ended up after crossing the border in pursuit of freedom. We have a treasure trove of incredibly inspiring local black history, and today we dig a little deeper into the story of Henry and Mary Bibb. Henry and Mary settled in Old Sandwich Town in Windsor in August of 1850. Five months later, they opened The Voice of the Fugitive, the first ever black-owned newspaper in Canada. It was a massive step forward for the anti-slavery movement, as well as a significant milestone in black Canadian history. As difficult a task as it would have been to start The Voice of the Fugitive, the road leading to that moment was much more difficult. Henry Bibb was born a slave, seeing nothing but the horrors of human ownership through his entire adolescence. And while Mary was born a free woman, being a black woman in America during that era was no cakewalk either. They had a lot to overcome to get to where they were. In this episode of the 519 Podcast, we tell you their story. This is Printing for Freedom. Here's your host, Haley Cheng. Both Henry and Mary Bibb played a crucial role in the success of The Voice of the Fugitive, both having different motivations. To Henry, abolishing slavery was a lot more personal. While some people at the time only read about the horrors of slavery, he had lived them. Henry Bibb was born in Kentucky uh, as an enslaved person. He was, you know, he was the child of an enslaved woman. Um, His biological father was believed to be the enslaver of the family. Um, But he was born an enslaved person. He had a very difficult childhood. He experienced a lot of suffering. He experienced a lot of hardship. He experienced a lot of uh, violence, um, hunger, You know, he talked about not being well enough clothed in the winter. His feet would be cracked and bleeding because of just the way that that these enslaved people were treated, even in the harsh conditions of Kentucky. That's Irene Moore Davis, president of the Essex County Black Historical Research Society. She's also the co-executive producer of a short documentary about both Henry and Mary Bibb that is currently in post-production. Henry Bibb actually detailed the suffering and trauma he experienced as a slave in his later years through an autobiography he wrote. The details of what he lived through were harrowing, with both the mental and physical impacts laid out plainly for all readers. The manuscript of his autobiography has been made free of copyright restrictions. These are the impacts he saw and felt in slavery, in his own words. That the slave is a human being, no one can deny. It is his lot to be exposed in common with other men to the calamities of sickness, death, and the misfortunes incident to life. But unlike other men, he is denied the consolation of struggling against external difficulties, such as destroying the life, liberty, and happiness of himself and family. A slave may be bought and sold in the market like an ox. He is liable to be sold off to a distant land from his family. He is bound in chains, hand and foot, and his sufferings are aggravated a hundredfold by the terrible thought that he is not allowed to struggle against misfortune, corporal punishment, insults, and outrages committed upon himself and family, and he is not allowed to help himself, to resist or escape the blow which he sees impending over him. I was taken away from my mother and hired out to labor for various persons, eight or ten years in succession, and all my wages were expended for the education of Harriet White, my playmate. 
It was then my sorrows and sufferings commenced. It was then I first commenced seeing and feeling that I was a wretched slave, compelled to work under the lash without wages, and often without clothes enough to hide my nakedness. I have often worked without half enough to eat, both late and early, by day and by night. I have often laid my wearied limbs down at night to rest upon a dirt floor or a bench without any covering at all, because I had nowhere to rest my wearied body after having worked hard all the day. He had from a very early age a, a strong desire for freedom. He knew that enslavement was not his natural state of being. So he was determined to get there. And uh, as a young man, he ran away. I mean, he had run away multiple times. He ran away. He was successful in getting all the way to, um, you know, to the free states in the north. Unfortunately, he was recaptured and brought back. Escaping slavery was incredibly risky because of the punishment that would come with being caught. Escape attempts were not taken lightly, especially when you had an owner that considered you less than a human. The punishment methods were barbaric and cruel. Henry's was no different. At the sound of the overseer's horn, all the slaves came forward and witnessed my punishment. My clothing was stripped off and I was compelled to lie down on the ground with my face to the earth. Four stakes were driven in the ground, to which my hands and feet were tied. Then the overseer stood over me with the lash, and laid it on according to the deacon's order. Fifty lashes were laid on before stopping. I was then lectured with reference to my going to prayer meetings without his orders, and running away to escape flogging. While I suffered under this dreadful torture, I prayed, and wept, and implored mercy at the hand of slavery but found none. After I was marked from my neck to my heels, the deacon took the gory lash and said he thought there was a spot on my back yet where he could put a few more. He wanted to give me something to remember him by, he said. After I was flogged almost to death in this way, a paddle was brought forward and eight or ten blows given me with it, which was by far worse than the lash. My wounds were then washed with salt brine, after which I was let up. Henry tried escaping several times from slavery, but was always caught. He kept trying despite the punishments because he wasn't just trying to free himself. He was also trying to escape with his family. While he was a slave, he met and fell in love with an enslaved woman, Melinda, who lived about four miles from where Henry was held. I had no intention of courting or marrying her, for I was aware that such a step would greatly obstruct my way to the land of liberty. I only visited Melinda because I liked her company, as a highly interesting girl. But in spite of myself, before I was aware of it, I was deeply in love. And what made this passion so effectual and almost irresistible, I became satisfied that it was reciprocal. There was a union of feeling, and every visit made the impression stronger and stronger. When Henry escaped, the only real fault in his plan and the one thing holding him back was that he was returning to save Melinda and their child. This obviously was no real fault. He loved his family and he was trying everything he could to free them. Eventually, through the cruel process of ownership, Henry was sold apart from his family and he would never see them again. I can never describe to the reader the awful reality of that separation for it was enough to chill the blood and stir up the deepest feelings of revenge in the hearts of slave-holding black legs, who, as they stood by, were threatening, some weeping, some swearing, 
and others declaring vengeance against such treatment being inflicted on a human being. As we left the plantation, as far as we could see and hear, the deacon was still laying on the gory lash, trying to prevent poor Melinda from weeping over the loss of her departed husband, who was then, by the hellish laws of slavery, to her, theoretically and practically dead. One of the blacklegs exclaimed that hell was full of just such deacons as Whitfield. This occurred in December 1840. I have never seen Melinda since that period. I never expect to see her again. Eventually, Henry would break the bonds of slavery and escape, finally getting the freedom he had so long fought for. He made his way to Detroit and, you know, accepted the fact finally that he was not going to be able to liberate his family. And so sort of began living as a, as a free person. Once he escaped, Henry Bibb began advocating against slavery, hoping his life story would move others to take up the cause of abolition. While most people in Detroit had only read about the horrors of slavery, Henry had first-hand experience with its inherent evil, and his accounts were eye-opening. A lot of anti-slavery activists were talking about slavery in kind of a theoretical or hypothetical way from the things that they had heard or read about. He has lived experience of living in slavery, of being sold from place to place, of not seeing his mother for years and years, you know, not being able to reach his family, of all of the hardship, the physical torture, quite frankly, the brutality, the deprivation, not having enough to eat, not having adequate clothing, and but being expected to work out in the fields uh, all hours. Um, you know, all of that stuff, he could talk about it. He could talk about the emotional cost and the trauma. I mean, Henry Bibb basically had a nervous breakdown when he reached Detroit and realized he was never going to see his his wife and child again. And keep in mind, they weren't legally married. A lot of people didn't allow enslaved people to legally marry. But this was his life partner and, and this was their child. And he knew he was never going to see them again. The fact that he would never see his wife and child again fueled the passion in his speeches, and they were key points in driving home the brutalities of what he had suffered. Being separated from a wife and daughter is something that would resonate with anyone. Henry used this to his advantage. To accompany his speeches, he also began to learn how to read and write, something slaves were never allowed to do. He had always been a bright, intelligent, creative thinker, free thinker, but he finally had the gift of literacy now as an adult living in Detroit. And once he knew how to do that, he just took off. I mean, he became a noted anti-slavery speaker, a noted anti-slavery writer. Picture yourself like learning to read and write as an adult and becoming a journalist and working for an anti-slavery newspaper. That's what he did. He met a woman. He met a very fabulous, intelligent, uh, motivated, energetic woman named Mary Miles. And she was a free person of African descent. She had never lived in slavery. She had grown up in Rhode Island and had been educated and became a teacher. And she joined the anti-slavery movement and they met at a convention in Boston and they fell in love. Mary Miles would eventually become his second wife, as well as his partner in the fight against slavery. She really did not have to be involved in this movement, but she had a tremendous sense of the responsibility that she had as a person who had had the privilege of education and who was a member of the African-American community. And it was partly her Quaker upbringing too. 
For the next little while, Henry and Mary Bibb worked in Detroit, going on speaking tours and working with other abolitionists. But in 1850, this all changed when America passed the Fugitive Slave Act. The act made it possible for slave owners to send bounty hunters and slave catchers up to free states and capture formerly enslaved people. Enslaved people, or formerly enslaved people, or even free people who had never been enslaved, had to have like written proof that they were not、uh, enslaved people who had run away, or they could be sent down south. Judges were actually paid incentives to help send people down south into slavery. A lot of places, black people could not testify on their own behalf. So that led to. Many, many, many more people crossing over into Canada. People who had been living in in places in the north, like Ohio and Michigan and Indiana and places like that, they really found that it was necessary to cross that border and head into Canada, where they were not so susceptible to all of the dangers brought about by that act. And so Mary Miles Bibb and Henry Bibb moved to Sandwich, and that's where their Canadian story begins. They eventually settled in Sandwich Town in Windsor, which kept them close to the border. They could have gone far into the interior. They could have gone to Toronto or Hamilton or somewhere else to be safe, because we know that there were slave catchers and bounty hunters who crossed the border to kidnap people,、um, even though it wasn't legal for people to be enslaved in Canada by this point. But they stayed near the border so they could stay in touch with their contacts in Michigan, and also so they could help other slaves that were escaping and making their way to Canada. They wanted to make sure that people in America knew that Sandwich, or more broadly, that Canada West, southwestern Ontario, were safe places for formerly enslaved people to come. To do this, Henry and Mary Bibb started their own newspaper, The Voice of the Fugitive. It's this venture that cemented them as some of the most influential Canadians in history from that era. Voice of the Fugitive really starts the Black Press in Canada. So I mean, just by being The first sustained effort at a newspaper lasting multiple years,、um, it was just groundbreaking. It, it shattered people's expectations. People around here certainly didn't think that a black newspaper could survive, but it did, and it survived largely on the back of. First of all, Henry's very strong voice and and his being so well known in the anti-slavery movement, but also Mary was really hustling, getting those subscriptions and those donations, and making sure that it was financially viable. Henry was the voice in the newspaper, while Mary took care of the behind-the-scenes work, which was essentially everything Henry did, but without any of the credit. When he and Mary started the newspaper, you've got to keep in mind、um, it was a very sexist, sexist time, right? Gender expectations were a lot different. This is basically the Victorian era, so Mary Miles Bibb's name never appears on that newspaper as a co-publisher or co-editor. But that is what she was. She sometimes wrote articles for it, and she did the bulk of the fundraising for it. But in fact. Um, it's really only Henry Bibb's name that appears at that top of the voice of the fugitive for years and years. And often, when he was on speaking tours, she was running that newspaper herself, like literally laying out the pages and printing it and all of that stuff, and、uh, receiving the articles and editing them and all of that. So they were really a dream team. The voice of the fugitive played an important role in showing escaped slaves in America the kind of lives they could be living once they moved into Canada. The voice of the fugitive helped people to see that there was a safe haven here, and it offered a lot of descriptions about 
what to expect when you come to Canada West or specifically to Sandwich or Windsor or these places, you know, along the Detroit River uh, border region, um, what the climate's like, what kind of crops grow here, what kind of jobs you can get. It would include information about people who had you know, made themselves into success stories, literal rags to riches stories. These people who had been formerly enslaved, who had never had any control over their lives. They were told when to get up. They were told when to go to bed. They were told what they were going to be doing. They were told, frankly, who to marry or who to partner with often. It was terrible. They had so little control over their lives. And many people in America were wondering, well, what happens to formerly enslaved people when they're free? Because the prevailing narrative had been like, they can't be free. They, they, they don't know how to function on their own. They have to stay in this condition of slavery. The Voice of the Fugitive wasn't just telling potential refugees about the opportunities in Canada. They used the newspaper as a way of showing the opportunities through the accomplishments of former slaves that escaped before them. They were taking adult literacy classes at night. They were sending their kids to school. They were owning property. They were starting businesses. They were running farms. They were developing um, skilled trades capabilities. You know, they'd been working as skilled trades workers who were enslaved before, but now they had their own plastering businesses or carpentry businesses or, or whatever it might be. And so it was breaking that prevailing narrative that Black people couldn't function independently or be successful on their own, which, of course, was a narrative that Southern slave owners wanted to perpetuate. (laughs) I mean, you don't want people to think that Black folks can make it on their own. So the voice of the fugitive certainly attacked that narrative and disproved it at every opportunity. It was so important that people who were just coming freshly out of slavery, despite all the barriers they were facing, they had immense pressure on them to not only succeed and stand on their own, but to look dignified and responsible while doing it, to counteract the prevailing racist narratives about Black people. So Henry and Mary Bibb had a really significant role to play in helping people to demonstrate that they were good citizens at a time when many people were saying that Black people could not be good Canadian citizens, that they couldn't make it here, that they shouldn't be in Canada, and so on. Throughout the development of their newspaper, Henry and Mary also began their own settlement in Sandwich Town for former slaves to set up their homes and build a new life for themselves. Henry and Mary started the Refugee Home Society, where they raised money to purchase 2,000 acres of land for settlement. They sold pieces of that land at largely reduced rates to newcomers to Canada. It was a way to make sure that not only were escaped slaves free, but they were also given the resources to thrive and establish a real and meaningful way of life. Settlers would finally be able to own their own land and make their own money. The Voice of the Fugitive also talked, though, about the immense needs of those who were newly arrived. I mean, there are two narratives that can be simultaneously true, that once people got a foothold and were able to make their way, they could be successful. But when people newly were arrived, very much like Ukrainian refugees this year, they needed some help or or refugees from wherever, they needed some help to get on their feet. So the voice of the fugitive was helpful in crafting that story about the hardship that people experienced when they first arrived and how it would be really useful to send money to help them with food and clothes and housing and things like that until they could get their start. 
They were incredibly instrumental in fundraising for projects and missions that would support formerly enslaved people, kind of like settlement service agencies now. They didn't have that kind of infrastructure back then, and there was no citizenship and immigration department or anything. But they were providing services to get newly arrived refugees settled, to get them housing, to get them clothing that was appropriate for Canada. The Voice of the Fugitive also became a place where both former slaves and free Black Canadians could discuss the needs in their communities and start a public dialogue about what was best moving forward. It was a great way for people to have debates and discussions and editorial pieces about, you know, how best to um, to serve people of African descent, what was in their best interests. And I mean, these are these are articles by us, for us, about us, right? So these articles and these pieces of editorial writing are saying, we need to establish our own colonies and live separately. We need to establish our own economic infrastructure. We need to support each other. We need to have our own schools or whatever it might be. Um, those were important conversations to have and they were very well documented in The Voice of the Fugitive. The Voice of the Fugitive had accumulated a large and consistent following, both in the U.S. and in Canada, which potentially may have played a role in its demise. On October 9, 1853, the offices were burnt to the ground, never to become operational again. It was never known who the arsonists were, though one could assume it could have something to do with the proximity to the border. Being so close to America had been a risk all along, though it was one of the most effective locations they could be in for their cause. It was a tragic way for something as influential as the voice of the fugitive to go down. Henry died a year after the offices were burnt down, survived by Mary who continued to advocate for abolition in the years that followed. Their impacts are still recognized in Canada, but whether they are recognized enough is a matter of debate. Not enough people know about Henry and Mary Bibb, and it's something that those of us involved in telling the stories of Black history are constantly working on. I mean, I remain convinced that there are tons of people living right here in Windsor and Essex County who do not know this couple. They don't know this couple that has a federal historic plaque uh, in their name sitting outside Mackenzie Hall. There's a whole legacy of journalism that rests on their shoulders at this point. Many people owe them a debt. Um, they were incredible in terms of their forward thinking with respect to the Refugee Home Society. There are a lot of names that fall to the wayside when we recognize Black Canadian history, which is what makes February so important and meaningful. It gives us the chance to look back and uncover the stories that we really should already know, stories that should be taught in schools. Today, that happens to be the story of Henry and Mary Bibb, operators of Canada's first ever Black-owned newspaper. On the next episode of the 519 Podcast, we take a look at Mary Ann Shad Carey, the first ever Black female to own and run a newspaper in Canada through the struggles of 1850s extreme sexism. The 519 Podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network. This episode of the 519 Podcast was produced by Patrick Magermans and Haley Cheng. It was hosted by Haley Cheng. The 519 Podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network.